Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Original Marketing. I'm joined today by my co-host, Brady Cram. How's it going? Good. Good to be here. How's the week been so far on a Monday afternoon? I'm fully worked, man. Nice. I'm fully worked. I'm ready to record a podcast after all my brain cells have been used. So I'm excited to actually relax and switch contexts. And uh, it's going to be fun. Chat marketing with everybody. And so, you know, today what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at a topic called Tactically Delicious, a little segment we have where we're able to hopefully help you all listening and creatively explore ourselves what like tactics what's moving the needle for us today in marketing so brady obviously there's a trillion of them but what do you want to talk about today what's your tactic that's too delicious to not bring up man we shouldn't do this before i've had lunch i'm like starving (laughs) no i didn't have lunch yet okay i'll eat after all right but yeah tactically delicious um i was thinking about it preparing for the podcast and mine it can start high level but i think it's it's hyper relevant and it's headline writing okay. and just how you're introducing your product to the market and so the tactic is finishing the sentence i want or i want to when writing your headline i think we do this well at directive even though i think we put a lot of thought even around that concept into doing what we do but like with our LinkedIn ads, it says, inc- like, never miss your MQL goal or SQL goal. So I want to never. I want to never miss my SQL goal. And that is. Do you keep that I want to or delete that I want to? No, you delete that I want to okay, or okay. you can keep it. I, I think we even say it as a question sometimes. Want to never hit your SQL goal. So I think you can play with it. But the tactic is to remove it. We don't say never hit your. We say never miss. Never miss. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> never hit your SQL goal. That's how you move around as a CMO. That's how you increase your salary every time. It's the tactic no one is talking about. <laughs> no. So, yeah, that's how it starts. And the reason why I'm even talking about it is because a lot of people for a headline, they just say their product. For some reason, I was thinking about the lab grown diamond industry when thinking about this tactic. You didn't, did you, did you buy a Oh yeah, I went lab grown. Okay, that was crazy. And so I was kind of playing with headlines in my head as a consumer, what the headline could be for that market. And so it's, I want to double the size of the diamond at the same cost. So that would be a badass headline for lab grown diamonds. I like that. Instead of just saying lab grown diamonds and they get into, you know, how there's no difference on a chemical structure, blah, 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 blah. But there's real reason for someone to be in the market for that product. Yeah. And almost create the reason for them. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, you got to read minds. Well, there's a social issue too. They might not want to be a part of, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Blood Diamond, I'm not sure how it all actually goes down. But I do know that there's yeah. Yeah, obviously some probably subpar living conditions involved with making diamonds that people could also care about. I want to, right? And then have a fair trade supply chain. Yeah. I want yeah. an ethical experience right. to buying a diamond. Yeah. Like, So ethical experience of buying a diamond would be then the headline there going off of that i see what you're saying so i thought it was a cool tactic that i remember even using back in the day i think i learned it from unbounce maybe really almost a decade ago Dude, and we gotta send this to the team because i haven't heard something so simple i completely agree it's um okay so do you remember a uh, portent back in the day they used to do like headline writers there's like a lot mm-hmm. of tools that like you can hit it and like re it'll like it, it'll like give you a headline it's like for blog posts it's like yeah 24 reasons why your grandma's house is scary, you know, and it'll kind of like do that and it'll kind of like rotate them. Mm-hmm. It would be cool if we could put in like your value props. I wonder if natural language processing is here now. 
Because what you could do is you could have a I want to, and that would be the text, and the, the space could pre-populate based off of maybe all the value props of the product and the jobs to be done of the audience. So imagine if we had a section that had all the jobs to be done of the audience and another one that had all the value props of the product. And then if you hit I want to, it would just naturally write the headlines based off of the value props and the jobs to be done. Yeah. That would be clever. That's kind of what I was thinking, like, what is the layer yeah, yeah. under it? Like, okay, you gave me the tactic, but I can't finish the sentence kind of thing. So I was thinking of reviews. Okay. Especially in the nice. consumer market. Like, yep. this is something we do in B2B where we're even limited probably by reviews just based on the market size and people giving feedback in B2B. But especially in B2C, crawling Amazon reviews, product reviews on your site, there's a lot of people who just want to tell the world everything yep and so you can probably unpack not just their review of the product but also why they got the product in the first place like i wanted to do this therefore i bought that yep and so finding that information straight from the market yep. because it is tough to sit there and try to think like okay what does my market want well i've been working with the team on this and i like your point brady and i think there's a nuance i want everybody to hear is customer feedback should be personified mm -hmm. when using it to drive strategy so what I found is our team, for example, we were talking about this one account and they've done a lot of work on this account. And but they were struggling to understand how to turn the reviews into action, to your point. Like mm -hmm. it's like what they're it's like, okay, I got all these reviews and I still have that I want to statement, but how do I plug it in? And what they were finding was is they hadn't personified the reviews. So what you want to do, in my opinion, Brady, is yes, read the reviews, but then ask yourself which human had that feedback because like for example the review a marketing manager writes about directive is going to tell you something different than what the cmo writes and you don't want to take the feedback from the marketer and then advertise it from the marketing manager and advertise it to the cmo and vice versa so i think if you could do kind of i think the layering we're talking about which was i want to and then you understand your personas and what each persona wants to do you understand the jobs to be done of each persona and what they need to do. And then you understand all the reviews and feedback each persona is given. I would argue it's probably hard not to write a great headline yeah. at that point in that environment. Yeah. I mean, even with the diamond example, there is the ethical buyer and yeah. there's a price buyer. And you could probably find other correlations between the two and control the two messages. Yeah. And I because you you still want someone to feel like what they're buying is like socially relevant, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. it's still a part of the narrative. Like if you think about like, you don't want to go too hard on the fake diamond thing because you still want it to be a diamond. Yeah, that's right? what they're fighting against. Yeah. It's like it's known to be not a real diamond. Right. But what they can do is set the positioning on what they are. Yeah. And, and get more ownership and mind share about actually what they do and not just be known for well it's not real so i'm gonna ignore it well and the hypothesis of that tactic that brady's articulating is that sometimes it's more powerful to own what you're not than own what you are so instead of owning that you're a fake diamond it can be far more powerful as a marketer to own that you're not a diamond sourced through poor living conditions you're not a diamond sourced from lower economic regions that are being monopolized like you're you're saying what you're not, if that makes sense. And by saying what you're not, sometimes it's like the fake diamond part goes away because it ends up being that this is a better diamond. It's not that it's a fake diamond, if yeah. that makes sense. So, but I, tons I, of testing too. It's kind of like if you're thinking about what what to test, just 
finish that sentence for what you know and do A and B tests. And I think it's just such a cool, cool place in marketing that not a lot of people leverage, especially if they just take their product name and boom, that's my, that's my headline. So there's this weird thing, Brady, going on. When I talk to a lot of these marketers and we're doing all these sales calls together where, how do I explain this? Like there's a big divide. There's people who test headlines and test things, mm -hmm. but they test almost for the sake of testing and they use it as insurance more than leverage. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I, I know a lot of marketers that test everything so they can never be wrong, but they never actually build anything either. It's like they're using data and testing as like an insurance policy for their lack of success. And there's other marketers that don't test anything because it would take a lot of time and effort and require a tool and they won't want to get budget. So when you say test headlines, what's a healthy way to think about testing where you aren't testing for the sake of testing and just over-testing and just doing dumb tests? Or you're just not testing at all. Like, what's a healthy understanding of testing, especially yeah. when it comes to like this tactic? I mean, that's a good question. I think like this answer is kind of just coming from what I'm thinking now when you you challenge the testing, and that's setting goals for a test, right? That's just something I don't think a lot of people do. To your point, I think whether it's a you know talking to a client or if it's an internal team, people feel like they check the box because they're running a test. Well, if you don't have any results, the best thing to do is launch a test because you got to wait for that too. And I'm yeah, being dead serious. This is how people manipulate it. something yeah. is strategic. And so you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm testing. I'm Amy testing. Like, don't give me shit right now. I'm doing my job. Yeah, the test is in progress. It's not I done yet. The difference <laughs> is, hey, we're at 5% conversion rate now. Rate right now. We're going to be Amy testing with the goal to get to 10, 15. And I think having tests. By under, X a time. By yeah, by X a time. So having that accountability behind your testing. I mean, that's going to put way more thought into the research and the hypothesis that you're testing in the first place. But I think that's the difference. Is would, what is your goal for the test and when are you going to achieve that goal? And I think the biggest goal nugget of that was set a time. Yeah. Because I, I do think people have goals in their tests. They're trying to raise conversion rate. They're trying to do this, right? Because they have to kind of with the way the testing softwares work. But if you notice the way the testing softwares work, for the most part, they don't put end dates. Because they're all trying to keep you doing more tests and stuff. So they never want the test to end. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's not a lot of traffic. So maybe next month, maybe next month. Or it's but... all about confidence intervals. But yeah. then it's testing once again for the sake of testing, not testing for the sake of like accomplishing a business goal. Mm -hmm. Like that's my point. It's like when I'm trying to improve the conversion rate on a page, I don't want to do it just for the sake of that page. I want to do it within the lens of what the organization's trying to accomplish. I think if I can put testing within the organizational vision, then I think it becomes a more powerful tactic in media. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Now, now, what do you got? You want to hear it? I mean, I'm already starving, so. Yeah. Well, literally. Where are you going to get food today? I have a leftover cheeseburger from last night. Ready oh, Brady. It's you not know. pizza, baby. What are we talking about? I have life? leftover pizza as well. Oh, yeah, but that's different. No, it's it was a good soggy. burger. The brother-in-law put American cheese on it. I'm pretty stoked on that. Is there any sauce on the bun already? You got fresh bun? Because then the bun's got I got some soggy. leftover Chick-fil-A sauce. <laughs> I might, you know, air fry, broil the buns. Okay. We'll I, see. We'll I can't see. compete I got some pizza, guy. too. We'll see. Some Detroit style. <laughs> I got a new place in San Juan. You got to check it out. What's, what's it called? It's called Pizza. It's good? Yeah, it's a guy who's taken over the bakery section of a Mexican restaurant and is there from Wednesday to Sunday. Detroit style, two types of pepperonis. He's got honey that has been marinating in habanero in a little tube you can buy for three bucks. <laughs> yes. Shout out Lunita's Pizza. 
Okay, so Stay in Wong Charlotte, our producer, can you make sure Brady's eating before we do our next episode? Because I'm feeling good. He's just he's it's craving just, the food. The, so the title badly. of the segment's a little ironic. I, I know. Think about that. Going Tactically delicious, yeah. and he can't just stop thinking about food. I love it. So mine, Sheriff Serp. Um, okay. I hadn't talked about it in a minute, and I was trying to explain how I see SEO. That's a weird statement. How I view the field of search engine optimization, Mm -hmm. SEO. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is what I used to, frankly, try to pioneer almost like five years ago when I was starting all this was share SERP. And it is just as relevant as important today as it was back then. Yeah. And not enough people know about or are doing it. And so I want to help anyone listening today to kind of understand what share SERP means and this concept. So the concept is very simple, right? I, the purpose of search engine optimization is to be discovered when someone has purchased intent. Mm-hmm. So when someone is looking for the product or service you sell, are you discoverable? Do you show up in that moment? And back in, I think it was 1997 when the internet and stuff first started, we, the answer to that question is how do I like how do I get my products or services to show up when someone's searching for them? They're like, you need a website. Yeah. There's a ton of keywords behind an image. Correct. And you would meta keywords, <laughs> stuff it, you would play the game, and that's how you quote unquote ranked and then took traffic, showed up, and made money from SEO. Yep. Now the truth is that game doesn't work anymore. Search engine optimization might as well be called Are You a Brand? <laughs> like yeah. that's the way it works. You want to rank? Cool. Be a brand. Oh, you're not a brand? You can rank, you know how? Become a brand. That's kind of the way the game works. And now the irony is, is you can essentially create a search engine optimization brand through Sheriff SERP. And it's the same question you ask yourself. It just comes to a different answer. So how do I make my brand discoverable when someone's interested in the product or service I sell? And by changing the word from how do I make my website discoverable? which is what I believe everyone's doing wrong. Yep. Every marketer in the world who's trying to make their website rank is misunderstanding search engine optimization. Instead, what they should be asking themselves is, how do I make my brand discoverable? Not my website, but my brand. And when you change it to brand, everything changes. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you think it's still relevant. I mean, it's more relevant. Yes. It's almost impossible to do it any other way. Domain for the right terms. Yes. Because you're not God. You cannot control what Google ranks. Google can't control what it ranks. It's a massive machine learning algorithm that is also dynamically adjusting to an individual's own search behavior. So if I search like, and I I did this a couple years ago, I'm sure it works today. But if I were to search like how um, old is Justin Bieber? Mm -hmm. And I searched again right after and said, how tall is he? They know that that pronoun is actually referring to Justin Bieber and they'll give me the answer. So my point being is that even when we do all our keyword research and we're in our tools as search engine optimizers, everything is a dynamic experience relevant to the user, their cookies, their past browsing history, and their own retargeting, their RLSAs. Everything is dynamic. There is no true accurate keyword research or universal search volume. Everything is a dynamic experience. Now, the reason share SERP is so important is it allows you to come to life as a marketer 
in the sense that you can now capture market share on a search engine results page. So that's what SERP means, search engine results page. So I am trying to take up market share on a search engine results page when my query is being searched. So theoretically, your website's probably only going to rank once for a keyword. But what about those review sites? Am I on those yet? Well, I can put those review sites into like an SEM rush mm-hmm. and I can see what keywords they rank for. And oh my gosh, they rank number one for all the queries I want to rank for. Why don't I just get on that list? Next thing you know, I can be the best in the world at anything I want to be with a little ad budget and a few reviews. How do I control my search engine brand? I essentially what I call pay for SEO. So the key to search engine optimization, the key to SEO right now is share of SERP and paying to be discoverable when there's intent. So you can take any of your keywords, you can modify them by queries like reviews. So you could say SEO agency reviews. You could say ERP software reviews. You could say ERP software pricing. You could say ERP software competitors, ERP software um, enterprise. Also, these are all the different modifiers. Mm -hmm. Once you see who shows up on those pages, you're going to start to notice trends. You're going to see a lot of review sites. You're going to see a lot of publications that have listicles, 14 things to consider before buying your first ERP software. But that, that listicle, it might have a display ad opportunity on GDN. It might have an opportunity for you to reach out to the editor if you're not mentioned. It might have an opportunity for you to essentially position yourself to be discovered. So in a perfect world, instead of trying to rank for a query, what you should be doing is asking yourself, is my brand discoverable in every possible area? Do I show up in the four-pack of Google Ads? Do I show up on the review site? Do I have an article that ranks? Do I show up on other people's articles? And as you start to show up more often, you're going to notice something weird happens. Google starts to put you into their knowledge graph. Google starts to understand your product or service as the best answer to these types of people when they have similar intents. That is how you start to actually rank in 2022 in my mind, is you are positioning yourself to be discovered as a brand at every available opportunity. And because of that, now your website's ranking better as well as everything else. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think I know psychology is a whole nother segment on this show, but there's a really cool psychological signal tied to it. And that is once you start dominating search engine market share, as the end consumer experiencing that, whether you're software or a coffee shop, and someone's looking up best coffee in X location, and they see your shop. Well, what do you say? They're not not doing their job if they don't fill out your form, right? Yeah, they feel like they're not doing their job. They're not living the lifestyle. They're not really answering their query if they don't experience your product because of how often you show up. Right. It's almost like why you want to have a ton of reviews on Amazon is because now someone trusts you because of the volume of positive reviews. The same signal goes for your visibility on the first page of Google. If someone sees you in the first link, the second link, the third link and the fifth and you're positioned well, you're really not doing your job. You're really not answering your query if you don't look into who the heck is showing up across the board. Even if you're a startup who launched a year ago and your competitors have been around for decades. You just set that signal just through share of SERP alone. It's very controllable. It's like a metric or a KPI I just thought of. So you know how we have ad frequency? Yeah. We could like have SERP page. Yeah, we could frequency. have SERP frequency. 
Yeah. It's the same concept, right? Like it takes eight, what would it say? Like then it's like eight brand impressions before you, everybody, ever, anybody ever remembers you. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many SERP frequencies where you did enough queries in an industry, right? So I'm searching, let's say for a new hosting software, right? So I'm like best hosting software. Okay. And I see um, WP Engine. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I read up on them, show it's all nice. And I go back to my search show. I'm not like, oh, well, I did one query. WP Engine's the best. Take my credit card. That's not really how it works, right? So then I go back and I'm like, oh, HostGator. I look at my, oh, they look a little more SMB. Go back again. Oh, okay, these guys are all right. Oh, go again, DigitalOcean. Ooh, a little too devy for me. Next thing, you're going through this whole process. And at the end of it, you're like, okay. WP Engine came up four different times, three different articles. Mm-hmm. I checked their reviews. Then I went, I searched WP Engine, clicked on a brand ad. And it's like, way to go, Google. Way to go, PPC team, right? And so my point being yeah. here is like, I think SERP frequency entirely matters when someone has purchased intent. Mm-hmm. They want to know, is this really the best person? All of us do research. We all know how to try to find the best person. What I don't think many of us know as consumers and those who aren't professional marketers is all of that research can be paid for and it's not that pricey. So you can yeah. pay to be number one on all those lists and it's not nearly as expensive as a lot of other advertising. Mm-hmm to really influence sentiment for your brand in a category. Yeah. And a lot a lot of it can be free. I think in yeah. B2B, SaaS, and the AOV that we deal with, we see obviously these companies who have achieved these listicle rankings just monetizing them because yeah. it makes sense. But I think if you deal with other industries, a lot of it is free. It's content. It's like local OC mag content. They're going to rank the top 10X in OC and you can really just reach out to that writer. Yeah. I think just the other benefit of this tactic is its necessity. So I think for the listeners to understand like why you see it happening and why it's so hard to rank your domain is because, you know, back in the day, Google would use the first page of Google, let's say 10 links to show the top 10 most relevant companies. Now that there's listicle websites, Google can use one link to show 50 companies. Why would they not do that? Right. So that's why these directories and this list based content works so well in Google's eyes is because for their end users satisfaction, they get to show the end user their aggregators. Yeah, everything, everything in one link. It's listed. It's all prioritized based on why that blog. Someone else is saying they're great. Yeah, someone else is saying it. Correct. So it's really what Google wants for the end users. And so in my mind, I mean, there's no going back. It's just leaning in further in a share a SERP strategy. And trying to get your domain to show if you can, when you can. We still see industries where there's probably five spots still there for specific domains who do what that query is looking for. Like it's not to say it's impossible, yeah, but it's all moving in the direction where it won't be your domain ranking. And so you have to do that PR outreach. You have to see if it's an ad network. You have to start those relationships to get that visibility. A thousand percent. And so hopefully that helps y'all to understand better how to be competitive in the search engine as well as how to write amazing headlines by using this I want to methodology. Yeah, we both kind of pulled one out of the pockets from back in the day that are still hyper relevant. It's always nice to get those reminders. Back to the future, baby. Yep. <laughs> I want to talk about our next segment, Brady. Okay. Marketing and culture. It's nice. my favorite. I think yeah, too, no, it's fun. Yeah. So we're going into this world where there's a lot of unknown and Frankly, I mean, I feel like the last I haven't lived through enough at 30 years old to know everything or even 
smidge of anything, to be honest. But it's been a little while with COVID and like that unknown, like everyone in the world's wearing masks. We have lines. We can't go anywhere. It's everything shut down. We can't see our families. So we get out of that. Yeah. Have like what? Three to six months of like good things on sales, but literally no labor to service it. So everybody's still getting killed. Mm -hmm. And then we go from having literally the entire world in marketing changing jobs. Like I legitimately think probably 75% of marketers changed jobs in the last 18 months, 24 months. And they almost always do anyway, I guess. That's not that crazy. But like they really all changed. And we went all the way out of that to now the opposite end of the spectrum where we have companies doing layoffs. And I've kind of said this before. I think the reason companies were doing layoffs is they were underhired in 2020. They cut people because of COVID because they didn't know the world Mm -hmm. was truly exponentially harder than right now. Like it was scary. It was unknown. Many of us have never been in a global pandemic in our lives. We have no idea what that's going to affect the economy or businesses. Clients freaked out. I mean, I don't have clients freaking out like they did in COVID right now. Yeah. Okay. So we came from that. And then everybody was like, but then we got to from COVID. We had to do layoffs and cuts because nobody knows what's going to happen. Then we kind of rehire. We all survived that year. That's 2020. 2021, demand kind of picks back and everybody's like wanting to grow again. But then workers are like, I'm done with all this crap. I don't want to work for these people. Like they don't treat me right. I'm changing jobs. So everybody's changing jobs. And then we get out of here and it's just like inflation skyrocketing. And now we're actually, ironically, I feel like going the other direction where people are like, is my job safe? Mm-hmm. And so as we go into this new instability, Brady, and people, we haven't, you know, I got we got Q2 earnings coming, I think, at the end of this week. So we're going to see how the stock market reacts. Like, essentially, the P's been all bad, right? Prices down on all the stocks, but earnings hasn't been bad. Mm-hmm. We're going to see at the end of this week how earnings are for all these big public companies at the end of this week, for the most part. What do you think, you know, when those earnings come out, let's say they aren't bad. Do you think the recession's over? Do what do we do with ads? Like this yeah. environment we're in, like if you're a chief revenue officer, right, Brady, you're a CMO. You got earnings coming out. If you're in-house, you know how they're looking. If you're an agency, we don't really know, right? Mm-hmm. It's not publicly available information. And so what do we do? Like, what do we do right now as professional marketers when we're going into a recession? Do we spend more, spend less? What's your take? Yeah, I think I mean a lot of especially in our space. A lot of our clients are almost fit well for a recession in terms of their products introducing more efficiencies into an organization. And some of the challenging selling points of our clients' products is they replace humans. In the end of the day, like the end decision maker is thinking about their staff versus software in some cases or themselves. Right. So we can, our clients' products can come across as, as a threat to sometimes even the end user. It's what makes their marketing difficult. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's the efficiency and the effectiveness and any company that's looking to maintain or grow needs marketing, but they have to do it well. And I think you even brought up the chief revenue officer. Like that's something I've noticed is I've seen more CROs within sales conversations with us because I think it's getting to that level. And I think it always should have been at that level people looking at the effectiveness and efficiency of their marketing investment. So essentially what you're saying is the head of sales is very curious about what's driving their pipeline and they want to be involved. And it's simplest form. I mean, CROs are more head of sales than anything. Yeah. So the chief sales revenue officer is like, 
hey, if I need 3x pipeline to hit my goal or 2x qualified or 5x force, whatever the heck that number is, I'm very curious who's in charge of driving pipeline for me because mm-hmm. I'm codependent on the amount, on how they perform. Yeah. And we have a very interesting perspective and, in, you know, you and myself, I'd say, just where we've been positioned in the org and spending a lot of time on the front end of a client engagement, which is on the sales side. The volume of accounts that we get to see just as individuals at scale for us within SaaS, but the waste that happens in marketing budgets. Like it is insane how much money goes into Alphabet's Microsoft pockets. Yeah. So, everybody listening, let me explain kind of a little bit where Brady's coming from. So, they're getting the context. So, Brady does the uh, audits when um, someone comes to us. So if someone's looking to hire directive, Brady does the audit of their entire ad environment. So we do a ton of free work here. So if we do a proposal for you, it's a ton of free work. And Brady's kind of the chief strategist of that quote unquote free work. So for context, Brady, and we had directive, I think we have over $100 million in B2B SaaS spend mm-hmm. under management, which is a decent amount, I'd argue. And we have that all in the database. It's anonymized and secure, but we can essentially see um cost per SQL, cost per MQL, cost per SAL, um, cost per customer, lifetime value, AOV, across hundreds of industries, millions of spend, and you know get a really good sense of the market. You're doing probably what? How many of these audits a day too? On average? Yeah, on average, one to two a day. And these are all you know people that have at least you know very substantial budget to be working with us, or at least mm-hmm. wanting to be bigger. Yeah. And they're funded, Series A plus, big organizations. You're getting one or two of them. So I say all of that to lay the foundation of who Brady is. First ad hire we ever had seven years ago, ran all of paid media. So Brady's a quite talented advertiser. And you get to see more ad accounts than almost anyone in the world for B2B software. Yeah, it's fun. Which is dope. What percent of waste on average mm. do you see? Remember, Directive is a large player in software marketing. I'd argue yeah. largest in the world, mid-market and enterprise. What percent when you get an account of a mid, let's break it off. So, what percent of an account mid market mm-hmm. has waste? Mm-hmm. What percent of an enterprise account is waste? Would you say? So, I would have different like definitions of waste. Let's define waste. Then. So, there's waste where it is cost to them for something that will never become a customer. Okay, so let's 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 go egregious waste, not um, low value, yeah, poorly thought out. Because there's a waste maybe- of like it's the right people, but the landing page is worse than the competition and so they're spending all this money for people to see their page but it's not built to convert like no i'm talking like maybe largest preschool software in the world accidentally spending all their money on people looking for a preschool not yeah. software like that kind of way yeah, so we see way. that a lot like a good example is a cloud um data protection company yeah um they often are attempting to like get just so much volume from a search platform yeah. and they don't realize that they're becoming unrealistic with their volume attempt. And they are very close to consumer cloud storage type intent. And so a good example would be in a, a cloud data security company, they're wasting a ton of money on iPhone storage related terms and iCloud related terms. And so like with that type of waste, you guys can see why he's good. He's not giving me an answer, right? He's a very nuanced man. So give me your, yeah, if no, you I'm look at a proposal. I'm speaking and you're as doing... I think. I'm speaking as I think. <laughs> okay. So um, you, you think for a second, I'll ask you the question again. 
No, I know the question. I got, I got some numbers floating around. 20% of its weight. I was thinking 20 to 30 if I were to do an average. Unfortunately, the average is made up of probably a ton of outliers, if you will, in terms of like just extremely bad. And yeah. I remember the 80% very well, like vividly, just because yeah. I'm passionate about it. And I think it's, it's so interesting that. Yeah, but sometimes you and on. I do get accounts at this point in our careers where we both look at it and we're like, well, we don't have a lot of people at this company who we can put on this account because they like are freakishly good. Cause we are at that point too, where we talk to some advertisers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the in-house person might be better than some of our consultants. A lot of like, like we are getting to that level where you have some exceptionally, exceptionally talented mm-hmm. client teams. And I think we have the best advertisers in the world that work for us. And I can still go look at an account and be like, that's really good. Yeah. So let's say we got 20 to 30% waste. How, what, if you talk to 10 accounts that are all like, what percent do you think are really good at advertising? So the ones you're speaking towards, I would say we're lucky to see one in the 10. Yeah, I would argue too. Yeah. It's that low. And it is exciting when we see those companies because that gets into some of our initial work, like bringing in the product marketing team. Yeah, it's more like one in 25. I bet you if I did 25 ad accounts, I'd probably find one where I was like, Okay, they're ready for some next level strategy. They're mm-hmm. ready for some. I would argue if we do look at 25, though, 24 of them need to play the hits and they aren't getting their foundations right yeah. and their basics right. And they're wasting 20 to 30% of their spend. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Now, the reason we talk about that is to bring it all the way back to this recession point. Yeah. If you got 20 to 30% waste, is it so much that you can't advertise or that you might be able to parlay this recession into a like, um, what do they just do? What are they? What's it called when you put your agency up for like uh, review? Mm-hmm. Can you put your advert like when you if we think we're going to a recession and you're the CRO or the CMO or even the CEO or the board? It's more. It's not like should we advertise? It's more pause and see like really put it under some scrutiny. Mm-hmm. To me, that's kind of where I would say is kind of the step one. Yeah, and I think the gap is, I think this is actually getting better the more like board members talk to other board members, even at competitors. And these platforms are becoming far more popular in terms of like conversations around growth. I think mm-hmm. board members are now talking about Google ads. Yeah. But I still think we are closing the gap on people at that level, executive and board level saying, oh, Google ads, that doesn't work for us. Let's make some changes here. So there's a lot of performance mm-hmm. tied to the platform and not performance tied to the strategy within the platform, which okay. is, I think, what you're getting to. Is you're like, saying more, what they're doing is they're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and they're saying yeah. Google Ads doesn't work. Susan must have it perfect. Susan couldn't get it to work. So Google Ads doesn't work for us. It's not Susan's strategy might have been wrong. Yeah. And no, I hear that a lot. That. It's like, oh, yeah, we tried Google. You you're know, right. We, we tried Captera. We tried LinkedIn. It didn't work. So we're coming to you all for something net new. And they're thinking channel level and you go into how that channel was run and it was the strategy that didn't work. It wasn't the channel. Dropping heat right Yeah. So I think that's, that is something that needs to be closed. And articulated. No, you're completely accurate. So from what I can hear, if I kind of say back our conversation to us, ironically here, sounds like if you're going into a recession, if you're going into a moment of uncertainty and the world is spinning around you as a professional marketing leader or even a practitioner, Step one is to ask yourself, is our strategy good? And it's not so much to go straight to the channels and be like, where are we wasting money on Google? Mm -hmm. It's talking to whoever's running your Google ads and ask them strategically, 
what are we trying to accomplish out of Google to hit this goal of X revenue in Q3 or Y pipeline or Z SQLs? What's your strategy for that? And if they start mumbling and stuttering and spinning, I think that would be a sign that you either have to divest or increase investment in this channel, but you cannot ignore, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you just have to know, like, Google is against you. And it, it, it's fun because it gets down to the details. And so it's just one of those things where you don't expect even the VP level, director level at these orgs to understand the details of what's going on. But the problem is the manager level and the practitioner level, most of them don't know what's happening either. Well, it's because of what, what, what I call like this information gap, right? So the C and the V level have strategy, humanity, perspective, finance. Mm-hmm. They kind of have all this like the big blocks and they know those really well. But they don't understand offline conversion tracking. Yeah. Offers. Close variance on exact match. Like I have a great example. Incentives. That, yeah. A recent one was they do travel management. They do like employee credit cards, right? Expense management, all those things. And when I was in their account, I saw a lot of things pause and yeah. performance tied to it. And one of the trends was I saw they went after business credit cards. And that didn't work. And I understood it. It's like, okay, that's someone who maybe just started their own company, getting a credit card with their bank account. Like, that's not There's the no intent. maturity associated with the intent. You can't and tell so how mature they are. I yeah. saw them go after corporate credit card on exact match. And I get it. It's like, okay, if someone's looking up corporate, now we're talking employees, yeah. all that good stuff. And they shut it down because they saw the same performance. And that's where they ended. And so internally, you can already imagine the internal communication on, yeah, we tried corporate. The data was pretty much the same as business. I'm curious, Brady. Was there maybe a search term report that you yeah, could look so, at? Yeah, I, I highlighted corporate credit card <laughs> and I looked at the search terms. Yep. 90%, if not more, were business credit card search terms because Google mm-hmm. used it as a close variant to the exact match for corporate. And so the internal teams, they thought they were driving the strategy. They and had if they the idea. would have set business card as a negative in that group. Yeah, if they negative out business, then it would clean it up. Right. But it's tough to know who to blame here, right? Yeah. Because Google is just Tricky. changing their product yeah. so that the input, which is on the keyword level, the strategist in the situation thinks, oh, I'm doing strategy. I'm moving away from business and I'm including corporate and I'm going to collect the data. I'm going to report to my manager and they're going to report to the director VP and all that good stuff. Yet the details and the realities of what actually happened weren't what that entire company thought. I think that's, you know, that's a value prop I often like to say on calls to prospects yeah. is we are very realistic marketers. And I think that's the mindset you have to have in marketing right now when dealing with wasted spend and all of the traps you can fall into within campaign settings is you have to ask yourself, what is actually happening? When it goes to the age-old adage, right? The age-old adage in marketing is I know half my marketing doesn't know what, what works, but I don't know what half. And I would argue, despite all the attribution, mm-hmm. it's still where we're at. It's still what you're saying, right? So you do this whole thing, right, Brittany, where you're showing me how you can misspend 20 to 30%, right? You think you're going after business. Or you think you're going after corporate credit cards. You're actually still doing business. You're one layer away from discovering the information. But because you don't have a consultant as talented as Brady on your account, you don't catch it. And that's how you waste 20 to 30 Okay, it's very easy to waste 20 to 30% of spend in almost any channel due to targeting, messaging, technical reasons, whatever it is. Yeah. Now, 
That doesn't mean everyone listening should cut their spend by 20 to 30 no. percent. Well, I think one of the biggest issues from that scenario yeah. is now the company has concluded that corporate credit card search intent does not work for them. And not even just that. They've also concluded that Google Ads doesn't work for them. I think it's the most yeah. dangerous so part. Google Ads out the door doesn't work. Corporate credit cards. Hey, team, we tested it. The data was the same as business. Let's not go after that for the foreseeable future. I think that's the biggest miss is the false data is the overreaction false conclusion it's the overreaction to false information and so right we're heading into this recession we know 30 percent. everyone listening right now can i guarantee you can probably assume 20 to 30 percent of your ads right now aren't working so we need to cut budgets finance has come back to us we don't love this but this is just the nature when finance gets scared budgets get cut this is real talk so i'm sitting there I'm no longer the CMO or the CR. I'm the director of demand, Jen Brady. I'm sitting in my chair. I get the news. I got to cut spend by 30%. How do you discover, Brady, where you cut the spend? Right? We're going to this recession. Mm-hmm. It's a time of uncertainty. I'm listening to this show and I agree. There's areas of waste in my business. My strategy isn't always right. Um, people have false conclusions. What do I do to identify as a professional advertiser? Or as a director of demand gen, frankly, and I'm not a professional advertiser. Mm-hmm. So what do I do if I'm not the 1% of advertisers that can really catch the 20 to 30%? And instead, I'm just the individual that manages or employs an agency. How do I go about determining where I should stop spending my money in your mind? Yeah, I think it is drilling down to the realities as far as your mind can go. And so what was the keyword? Okay, cool. What were the searches? What devices were they on? What was the audience idea for this? Okay, who was actually showing up? What seniority were those positions? I think it really is just asking those deep questions. And that can almost force someone on more of like a practitioner practitioner level to find the gaps. And let me get specific for people so they can take that away. So there's two things you can do with what Brady just said that are actually specific. First and foremost, you can filter all your campaigns in Google by cost and click all the way down to the search term level in each of those um what was it campaigns is a nomenclature? Is ad yeah, you can do search terms on a campaign level, ad group level, right. keyword level. And then I would even recommend, at least if you're in B2B, sorting by, once you're down to that level, search terms, sort by impressions. Correct. And that's how you discover what is likely consumer-based intent because likely you don't have too many people online every single day searching things relevant to you. So when you sort by impressions, it's a nice trick to discover like what your campaigns are actually pulling that are possibly irrelevant. The common sense test. Yeah. Thing. Like, okay, so they're probably not a million people looking for this, right? Yeah, that's usually one like <laughs> for the cloud storage one for B2B, you get all the iPhone searches are going to be discovered in high impressions and likely tied to high costs as well. I love that. Now, the other thing you said was personas. So a lot of you might not realize this, but even if you're not running LinkedIn ads, you can put the LinkedIn pixel on your website and start to understand the firmographics mm-hmm. of your traffic. It's way more accurate, in my opinion, than like a Google Analytics behavioral or demographic report. This is going to get you a lot more insights. So kind of two takeaways, filter by cost and then look at impressions and then look at your search term report in Google ads. That's a great way to find waste. Yep. Another great way to find waste is from your paid social accounts, where at Directive, for example, we only use first party data. That's the backbone of customer generation. So we have a lot less waste than any other advertiser actually that you could hire because we aren't advertising using the platform's data. We're only advertising using manually verified data outside of Google ads. So anything like um, 
LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, programmatic, any of those channels, we can advertise exclusively to your total adjustable market. It's like ABM on steroids. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to a third way to save waste is stop using industry and like LinkedIn data to advertise on LinkedIn and instead only advertise on LinkedIn when you upload your account list because that's going to give you 10 times more control and cut the waste out. I would argue by 50% on LinkedIn, you're wasting if you're not using your own data, but instead using theirs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is where T-shaped marketers really stand out in orgs Yeah. because it's tough. I mean, you're going to be looking at performance to come to these conclusions, but performance is all historical. It's based on what is running in the past. And so you might run into situations where it actually is the right persona. It's the right search term. And to my point earlier, it's the landing page that's off. But if the data is not good, you might pause pretty much the best intent that's out there for your business and keep it paused yeah. because you had no one aware of the landing page environment for those terms and how the competitors were doing better offers yeah. and obviously taking that intent. No one was thinking that. And so you pause it and who knows how long until you run it again. And if you're a company who needs to grow, you know, that could be the most valuable intent that you're missing out on because you don't have a T-shaped marketer who knows how to think about landing pages and that type of analysis. So smart. It um it reminds me, Brady. So we talked about saving money in platform on Google, and that's your search term, filtering by cost, looking at impression, looking at the search term report. You can kind of catch your errors there. Mm -hmm. Offsite is by taking your top campaigns where once again all your cost is going, and then looking at the landing pages for those ad groups and those ad sets and asking yourself, is this the best experience? One of the coolest examples I have from this is a hosting company. Um, one of the top five hosting companies in the world was a client of ours. And they, uh, for like, like websites, you know, and we did this engram analysis and the word pricing never converted. And I was mind blown. Because mm -hmm. usually when I do an engram analysis and I discover pricing, I used to maybe be a little smarter than I am now, but I used to dive in all that stuff and I pulled out this pricing piece. Usually when I saw pricing, it was a high cost per click, but it also had a high conversion rate. Especially for hosting. Yeah. I mean, pricing and hosting is like essentially saying like, I'm in the market, my credit card's out. Is your pricing good? Well, they weren't converting anyone on pricing and they had low pricing. So that's where I was like, wait a second. Pricing is yeah, one of the... why you looked up pricing in the first place, Correct. probably. Yeah. yeah, it's like a competitive advantage of theirs. And they're like, anytime someone searches pricing, they, they're losing. I go look every single solitary landing page that was receiving traffic that had the search term pricing in it had no pricing on the landing page. And I was like, no. And they had the best pricing. Oh, yeah, they had the best pricing. So it's a perfect example of waste. When you start to look at landing pages, you run an engram analysis and you can look essentially at all the words people were searching before they landed on your landing page. And what that gives you is a really deep understanding of intent. And then you can start to see, mm -hmm. oh, we weren't, they wanted pricing and we never even talked about pricing. We never captured that intent. Yeah. But it takes a T-shaped marker to find that. If that person was yeah. only, let's say, just data analysis, they yeah. would have said, hey, this is the data behind pricing. We need to turn it off. And now for the foreseeable future, they're never going after pricing when the fix wasn't the intent, it was the page. So yeah, it's interesting. I think in the end of the day, T-shaped marketers are relevant. 
in this potential recession yep. to then really figure out how to have the most effective and efficient budget because these companies need to grow. And there's yeah. really, I mean, this is why we're in business with our deliverables is we truly believe they are some of the strongest and most controllable growth levers for companies. Yeah, if they weren't, we wouldn't. That's why we do what we do. If it was something else, we'd build an agency around it. Well, we, we, we essentially build an agency around ourselves. I think is what makes us fun and cool in the sense that like, we don't offer any services that we don't do for ourselves mm -hmm. and that don't work for us. So like share a SERP changed my life. Like what we talked about earlier, like that changed my life the first time around. That went from being a couple hundred thousand dollar shop to multi-million dollar shop. That was share a SERP. And yeah. then gift cards and customer generation went from being a multi-million dollar shop to tens of million dollars a shop by that. So like what we do for our clients is a direct byproduct of our research and development and what we tested for ourselves. But I want to step away from the micro for a second, Brady. So I think at a micro level, we've talked a lot about, okay, recession's coming. You got to cut 20 to 30% of spend. Yeah. Look at your landing pages. Look at your search term report. Look at your audiences, right? Look at those things. And I'm sure we could do a list for hours of everywhere you could look or check to find waste and tighten up without losing revenue, right? Just the waste. But at a macro level, Brady, when you think about uncertainty, and this is something I've been juggling, where do you put money in uncertainty? Do you completely cut brand advertising? Because what I think a lot of people are going to do is I think a lot of people between 2020 and now, and I'm not talking like forever, but between kind of like COVID, which took them to zero. Instead of trying to find 20 to 30% of waste, people just pulled the e-break. And yeah. just like, tried, oh, yeah, they unplugged it. They unplugged yeah. advertising. And I remember it was just obviously not fun for us, right? As an agency. And it was a tough time. People aren't doing that now. Mm -hmm. They're kind of doing pivots, reassessments of strategy, analysis, trying to find areas to save, right? That's what they're doing, which is good for us, good for them. I think it's good for the whole economy. But when you think about uncertainty, do you think we should go 100% to direct response? 90% to direct response? our marketing initiatives, do we just pause on the long term and then catch ourselves getting screwed in 2023? Do we use the recession? Because to me, part of me says, when heading into times of uncertainty, don't try to win in uncertainty, but try to build now so that in the future when there is a certainty, in other words, time is a, what it takes, time's a circle, right? Yeah. So we know we're going to go from this place of uncertainty to a place, 2018, place 2019, place like 2021, where we're back. We know the, the the future of stability is coming and this is a moment in time. We also know that great marketing takes time. So could someone argue, Brady, that if no one's buying right now anyway, the best thing you could do is go all in on brand advertising? Or do you think it's because no one's buying, we ought to go all in on direct response and capture as much of the audience as possible to survive? Like, how do you think we should be seeing this at a macro level as marketers? Yeah, I mean, I think you can rethink your product market fit. You okay. can rethink your personas. Like I said, I think, especially in SaaS, a lot of the value props are around cost savings. Yeah. But I think due to the economical environment, those weren't the strongest value props in the past, but they could be right now. And so I think it does start there. Is so in other words, so all these companies that are selling value because value works when you're winning. It's almost like you can have recessionary call to actions 
well, and like growth call to actions, right? When you're growing value, when you're when the economy's receipt like rescinding and closing, you go cost cutting almost. Yeah, and I think that's the per- clever. The perception of cost cutting when the economy is strong makes you sound cheap. So well, yeah, but it's like dynamic of, value yeah. props, right? Yeah. Like it's like it's like the macro environment can control our micro value prop. So when the macro environment goes up, our value prop goes up. When the macro environment goes down, essentially our micro value prop goes to cost cutting, right? Mm-hmm. And we we essentially pivot our value prop to the ecosystem we're marketing within. That's a clever concept. Yeah. So just overall product market fit, I think yeah. it's definitely time, no matter what your company is and what you do, I think trying to look at it through the current market macro. and yeah. that lens, that macro lens and see if a product market fit adjustment is relevant. Um, I'd say it's it's probably very common in our portfolio where they have these UVPs that they've not really put on the forefront because of the reaction making them seem cheap. And maybe a lot of people saying, I don't care about spend. I'll, if your product is super expensive, I don't care as long as I make more. Like I don't need to save more. Like show me the good stuff, show me the product, show me how much I'm going to scale. But now that people are fearful about money, the UVP on how much it can save you and cut costs could be more while right. still being an impactful product. It's not like you ditch everything else. But I think just adjusting what's on the forefront of your your positioning yeah. could be a time to change it. But I want to hone this in. And I want to make sure we get something for the listeners so mm-hmm. they can hear this. Do you, as a professional advertiser, and I'm speaking mostly from advertising right now. Yeah. Do you optimize the existing and focus on short-term wins, which is cutting mm-hmm. that 20 to 30% waste? Or do you build right now? In other words, do you say, hey, the market's down. We need time to launch these initiatives. Like a lot of times in marketing, you don't really do the campaign you know you really need to do, that initiative you know you really need to do because you've got to hit your Q3 numbers. Well, if we're in a recession as a marketer, you almost get almost like a hall pass where people say, you know, essentially the reason you didn't hit your Q3 numbers was because we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. Do you think that if going into a recession, then you should focus more on building so you win when there's no more excuse? In other words, if you just try to survive the entire recession, and then it ends, and then the next quarter, you've got nothing left because you just cut, 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 optimize, optimize, optimize. Mm-hmm. And now it's time. They're like, hey, Brady, what what you been yeah. up to lately? And you're like, dude, I was surviving for the last year. And now your results aren't there. You didn't build it. This is what happened, by the way, coming out of COVID. So we don't want history to repeat ourselves. I saw all of these companies coming out of COVID with no strategy, no foundation. No backbone. It was great for me because then they all go to an agency to help them develop these things. But they cut their whole team. Their leaders changed twice. Their budgets got slashed in half. And now they're just this marketing leader out in the middle of the ocean without a compass or a rudder. So when you hear that, Brady, does that make you think you have to build more? Or does it just mean like, dude, survive, survive, survive. Don't build, just optimize like crazy. Like, what what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the maturity. On like where you're at going into it, because I think some companies are set up to where they know, okay, with a lower spend, what's the most efficient, effective things we would keep on? Let's do it. Let's close the box on these other things that we still use for growth, but might be too expensive now. And when we're out of it, let's open that box back up. Mm. I think there are companies who actually have that set up. That's our alpha beta. So what you're saying is, let's run all of our campaigns that are alpha. 
This is where 80, 90% of our spend goes. We know it works. These things statistically have an LTV CAC of greater than three or a ROAS of Y, and they drive revenue for us. We aren't going to stop any of those. But all the things we launched last quarter, and frankly, like the woman who's running it no longer works here, or this dude launched it the quarter before, or the previous CMO was passionate about this, and we didn't want to sunset it yet. You're saying those things you might need to sunset or pause. That's yeah. your beta. And that's your risk assessment is like, let's yep. say the model's at a 1.5 now, but it is still new and there's moves to make. Like if you can afford learning it to get it to a three it, and you're confident, then you should do it. Yep. But if you can't, then yeah, that's what you cut off. I think it's just, it gets down to predictable revenue. But how many predictable levers does the org have set up going into it? I think that's where it differs. And what I do for everyone listening, my kind of criteria for how I do this is anything that is an LTV CAC of greater than two within the planning period, I'll keep believing in fund. So let's say I run a company on trimesters. Let's say you run on the quarter. You launch a campaign in Q3. At the end of Q3, if you can get it to an LTV CAC of two, or at least trending in that direction, I try to, I try to upgrade that to alpha and get it out of beta. But if I've got something that hasn't been able to crack the lifetime value to customer acquisition cost of two, I might sunset it than just trying to keep pushing it because I have never found a marketing campaign that didn't work, like that changed my business that didn't work out first. Maybe it was hard to monetize, like gift cards took six months to monetize, but they always pumped the pipeline. So there was always like very strong indicators that this campaign could work. And so I'll believe in it. I've never had a campaign that like had no indicators and I gave it more time and it eventually worked. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like good marketing, like a good marketing campaign. I've never had one that didn't win on the marketing metrics from day one. I've had plenty of great marketing campaigns that sales wasn't ready for, that didn't really fit right, that the reason we acquired the customer from the marketing didn't match with what sales was used to selling from an intent standpoint or a part of the buying journey. But I don't think I've ever had a marketing campaign that I can remember that didn't work. And then I just like pounded on it for months and months and months. And it worked. It's usually just like, you have to launch a bunch of them. But when something works, I feel like it just kind of works. Yeah, I mean, sure, there's holes in the ship when you launch. Right, of course. But you got traction, you got good signs. It's like there's something there. Yeah, that all goes down to the planning. Right, how sophisticated the planning phase is pre-launch. I do think before we wrap up, you know, we're talking about LTV to CAC models, but it, it just reminds me of, I think a a common mistake that could be had in this environment, and that is the direction on let's keep things live, but let's get the cheapest leads possible. Ooh, I can definitely see that happening. It's something I've seen a lot in my career. Is the answer being the lowest cost per lead. When the marketer essentially form. has their goal of SQLs and they kind of change it to MQLs. Yeah, we just need lead volume. We yeah. need to stay alive. We need to keep our sales team busy. We're going into a recession. We're cutting budgets. I need the cost per lead to go down to this. I think that is the most dangerous thing you can do because hmm. the customers, which is all of that is done to probably get more customers. Yeah. But the cheapest leads, what we have in our data sets, are your highest cost per customer. Yeah. So highest I do CAC, think for sure. Yeah. I think like as much as we are talking about LTV to CAC, it could easily be not perceived as like a vital 
yeah. it could be perceived as like, oh, that sounds like a nice to have. Yeah. But it is a need to have. And I think that's just important for. Just well, yeah, when it comes to, to customer acquisition costs, don't ever assume your competitors are stupid. In other words, if you're advertising in 2022, you exist in an auction based environment. And so if you're participating in an auction, don't think you're so much smarter than all your competitors. And how could they ever pay X amount for a lead? If they've been paying X amount for a lot of years, just trust me on this. It's because it works. And anytime you're in B2B where you have high average order values, do not ever try to optimize towards in-platform cost per acquisition, but always try to optimize towards in-pipeline via offline conversion tracking OCT, down funnel lifecycle metrics or revenue or customers or demos. And what you'll find is your most expensive clicks are almost always your cheapest demos. And it gets you a very healthy understanding of why something's expensive in Google, mm -hmm. but cheap for your business. And you always want to optimize for your business, not the channel, yeah. not the platform. Yeah. And if someone does have a channel or a source, it's like their lowest cost per lead and lowest cost per customer. You can hit me up because I'm always looking for unicorns, but yeah. they're, they're tough to find these days. Correct. I have one more question okay. before we wrap up. It was something I was thinking about when we were talking about the waste to spend. Yeah. And so... You know, whether you're on the agency side of things or an in-house marketer talking to the practitioner who is responsible for the spend and is the one likely to discover the waste of spend as CEO at Directive, how should these people inform that, oh, I found 30% wasted spend, so I know what to clean up. How do they do that in a way where on the flip side, now these people are informed that they've been wasting 30% of their money for who knows how long? And it's that person's responsibility. Like, how would you go about that? So how do you step in crap without getting your shoe dirty? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is, <laughs> yeah, there is no right no. answer. But I, I'd be curious what you think about that. Because I think a lot yeah. of people, there is that fear on diving into things. Okay. You could just quit your job and run from the problem. It's <laughs> what a lot of people do. Yeah, unfortunately. no, I think they do. Um, I think step one is to make sure that you don't ever pair bad news without a solution mm -hmm. because then the executive you're presenting the problem to doesn't see you as the solution. Okay, so what I've found as a leader is the person most motivated to solve a problem is almost always the one who created it. Okay, so if you're a good leader, letting someone go or giving them a really harsh performance review or just kind of kicking them out of the company because they misspent 30% of the budget should not be your course of action if they bring you a solution. If they don't bring you a solution, I'd argue you probably should let them go because this is an individual who's almost, who's given up at this point mm -hmm. or at least not wise enough to frame themselves as the solution. And you could probably get someone more talented for the opportunity. However, to your question, I would make sure that when I informed everyone that we lost 30%, I would do so first and foremost in a way that no new information could be discovered. It's kind of like if you've ever done anything really, really horrible to your significant other and you only told them 75% of the story and they take you back and then they find out about the other 25%, you're probably in a bad spot. Yeah. So my point being of this is don't be the marketer that says you only lost this 20. Enough. Yeah, you only lost 20%, but don't tell them about the other 10 points mm -hmm. and then they hire Brady and Brady catches the other 10%. 100% of the time. So I would argue in all things, 
the best news for de- the best way to deliver bad news is with 100% honesty mm-hmm. and a solution. So if you do it with 100% transparency and honesty, here's exactly where I made a mistake. Here were the reasons why I made the mistake. But most importantly, and here's how much money it costs the business. No sugarcoating it. But most importantly, here's how it'll never happen again. And here's what we're going to do moving forward. That's going to not only make us allow us to recover for those losses, but actually fuel us forward. And if you say it with that much confidence, I don't know any executives that'll let you go. Yeah, I think the commitment to the org as well. Yeah, I think there's you could easily just have your tail between your legs in those situations and and kind of like shiver and present the data. And I think that's where you're screwed. I think, you know, the fact that it was discovered in the first place and, you know, who takes ownership of that, you never know. Maybe the leader who demanded that we look into things like give them that ownership. It was because of them telling you to look at it. That's why it was found like, oh, that's okay. But you just need to own it. You need to be transparent. You need to lay all the cards out. And I think that's a great piece of advice is come with a plan, not yeah. just the bad data. How will it never happen again? And what are we going to yeah. do different moving forward? Yeah. Those are the two questions. How will it never happen again? And what are we going to do different moving forward? Now, there's a question you didn't ask me, but I want to talk about it, I think, to wrap up this segment here. What do you do as a CMO or a CRO if you've got to cut 30% of the budget? which is different of what do you do if you're director of demand gen? What mm-hmm. if you're an advertiser? Mm-hmm. So what I would do if I was a C-level exec, anytime I'm in a position and I have to make cuts, but I also have growth goals. Because the irony of the situation is nobody who is a C-level exec going into this kind of Q3, Q4 right now who has like goals that aren't bigger than Q2 and Q1. Mm-hmm. So we have to grow in this recession universally that's every c-level executive yeah i haven't heard the let's just plateau conversation yeah or hey we're gonna lower your goals in q3 because we believe as a board the best way to motivate you is to set lower goals it's not really how it works right (laughs) so i would argue marketing organizations have a lot of low leverage individuals in their org chart and if i had to cut 20 to 30 percent the last thing i'm touching is my spend Spend mm-hmm. is one of the highest leverage things I get. And I always need a way to allocate my capital. So let's say I uh, have a burn, right? Like my company has a burn, I'm a software company, and I'm running on VC money. I need to get as much leverage as I can off their cash. And now there's almost always more cash. What there's not always more of is ways to allocate the cash mm-hmm. to drive revenue. What I have found is headcount is almost always the least leveraged thing you have in a company outside of a very select few execs. So the vast majority of humans are getting leverage off of their boss, not creating leverage for their boss. And so I would look at my org chart in growth and I would ask myself, if my call volume is going down, do I really need all 12 SDRs? Yeah. Because SDRs are the definition of low leverage. Essentially, what you're doing is you're saying my high leverage people, my AEs, I want to manage their time better. They're more expensive and they create more revenue for the business. So I need to be careful with their time. SDRs are lower leveraged and create less revenue. I don't need to be as careful with their time. And because they're cheaper, a lot of times you can have too many of them because you don't ever want to have not enough. So I would look at my SDRs. I would look at people in marketing that aren't driving revenue. And this is a sad truth. If you're in a marketing organization 
and your job is like um kind of more administrative to a certain extent mm-hmm. like you're not the person running the hubspot but you are the person who writes the email on the hubspot that person is in a little bit more trouble they're managing a channel that might have lower value in b2b and frankly other people could probably write the email or they could send less emails and their pnl won't know the difference so i'm going to look at every single solitary headcount in growth sales and marketing and i'm going to ask myself if i didn't do this anymore would it have any short or long-term effect on my pnl and if the answer is no what I would probably do, which is essentially what every CEO is doing right now. So I would use the recession to my advantage to downsize my growth org to get myself back in budget without frankly having to lower my goals or really change anything other than the fact that I had overinvested or I had some ongoing investments that were no longer profitable that I need to sunset or I have humans in a role where frankly, I'm just not getting any enough out of them or I don't have enough hours of value that they can create. And that's kind of how I would trim up. But I would never touch spend. Not because I'm an advertiser. I and I sell an ad agency. This is like for my own business. You try to never cut spend because it's the only thing that scales without headcount that well. And you get that much of a leverage off of. And so I would really try to keep my spend tight. And then I would look at my internal team and ask myself, where am I not getting leverage? Mm-hmm. And then what investments Frankly, should I have sunsetted a while ago? And thus, if I sunset the investment, there's usually a headcount associated with those initiatives and campaigns and investments that I could essentially integrate to that decision. So that's probably how I would look at it. Yeah, no, I think at a high level, if the pressure of this recession was placed on companies while the economy was thriving, we would have even better companies out there. Like that's the way I look at it is a lot of it are things that should have been done, but they didn't have to be done, I guess. Correct. Prior to this. And now people are using the recession as an yeah. excuse to get their EBITDA right, their cash flow right yep. in those moments. It's and more because they have to. Correct. Someone's forcing them to make the decision they should have made six months ago yep. is what the vast majority of this is. The other half of what this is, in my opinion, is people who were underhired due to the great resignation in 2021. So they overhired in Q4 of last year. And then when kind of everything kind of came back around and all of a sudden, none of those people churned. So essentially what's happening is like these HR departments, these people ops departments, they do have essentially what we call um, regrettable churn and it's all forecasted. So all the, like people don't quite realize how advanced people ops is. So people ops can look at all of your current retention rates by departments and see how often you're losing people. And then in 2021, we all lost people exponentially more often than we did in 2020 where everybody was just glad to have a job and they didn't get laid off because of COVID. If you had a job in 2020, you were keeping it. Well, in 2021, you were like, wait a second, I'm in demand again as a worker. All these people could hire me. I'm going to go check out better options, get a 30% raise, and I'm going to get a new place. Totally normal. Then 2022 comes around and companies are like, whoa, we're booming still. We can't ever be underhired again. So they overstaff their marketing org. They overstaff their sales org. They overstaff their CS org. And they're like, 2021, the largest economic boom I've experienced in my lifetime, it's never going to end. 2022 is going to have it. 2023 is going to have it. We just got to hire, hire, hire because we never want to run out of talent again. And then boom, all these companies overhired. The economy naturally pulls back to a more reasonable state. And now these CEOs are doing layoffs mm-hmm. because of a quote unquote pending recession 
when really all it was is they got overzealous and wanted to be on the right side of the great resignation. And now they're experiencing the great layoff because they over indexed on yeah. the other side of it. Yeah. I wonder how many of them lowered their standards too as they were. Everyone, dude, we every C level exec needed bodies in 2021. Let's not yeah. kid ourselves. Yeah. Everyone needed bodies. Yeah. I, I just ask because I wonder like how much of it is looking at the job description that they brought on as not being a good fit anymore or the person themselves. Well, I know at Directive, we had a couple roles that we had a sunset that we only mm-hmm. created because we literally couldn't hire enough people in our normal roles. So we created like this a role that would do a similar thing that wasn't fully baked into our business model just so we could test it in case we couldn't get anybody to do the old job if mm-hmm. here's a new version of the job and it might have you know account management plus someone else doing the buns and it takes two people but at least we could fulfill the work yeah everyone was just struggling with fulfillment whether it was a product company with supply chain a service company with bodies whatever it was we were all understaffed in 2021 so we all went never again hired like crazy in Q1 and Q2. Q3 comes around. It's a recession. It was like, we're doing layoffs. And it's like, well, everyone just over like indexed on this pendulum swinging the other way. And I guess we're going to see at the end of this week with these earnings reports, is there a recession or was there over hiring and inflation going on? Yeah. We'll see. We shall see. Well, Brady, we've talked tactics. Yeah, another good episode. Talk recession. God willing, there's none of it. <laughs> I really don't want to cut anything, any spend or any budget. So, um, but really, really cool to see, I think, from my lens, your understanding of how to write headlines, how to save money, how to cut costs. And I think hopefully people can walk away from this, have a couple of tactics in their pocket. But also have an understanding of how do you articulate bad news? Mm-hmm. How do you, at a macro level, invest in tomorrow when you need results today? And what are the consequences of not investing in tomorrow when you need results today? Right? And balancing all that. So hopefully, this was an amazing episode for everyone. And we're able to, uh, you know, keep having fun together. So like, subscribe, share. Any other tips? No, just feel empowered as a marker. I feel like that's a a takeaway from all these talking points, even you bringing up like, hey, if you're just the person getting quotes for boxes and you're not driving revenue and you're a marketer, you might get cut. And I think that's just a good awareness, like feel empowered, be connected to revenue because anyone with a marketing title can put themselves in that situation. I know I have early on in my career, Mm -hmm. I was getting quotes for boxes and I was doing Google ads. Yep. And I decided to make my job full-time Google Ads because I was able to go into Salesforce and see my impact on revenue. Yep. So I think that's just good advice for anyone getting started or even feeling stuck. Yeah, if you're in marketing, stay close to revenue and always make sure you're tied directly to it. You'll always have job security that way and you'll always be valuable. So thank you. And that's Original Marketing. See you, everyone.